Welcome to a new episode of the Creative Industry Insight Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby. Today is the first of a number of episodes where we'll be covering FX's The Bear. For hors d'oeuvres, we have editor Adam Epstein join us to talk about his work cutting on the show. Please be warned, there are heavy spoilers in this episode. So let's let it rip with Adam. Hi, Adam. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, my pleasure. I'm glad I can get you on. We're going to be talking about The Bear, which had its second series released recently here in the UK, and it's been out for over a month or six weeks in the US. I'm not sure why they didn't come out at the same time, but it must be something like a rights issue or something uh, for streaming. Um, so it was like really difficult to mute everything related to the bear so there was no spoilers for so long probably like what's well, one of those things the same like when it's i think the hype around it was so big it felt like sort of like avengers so you had to sort of mute so you didn't have any spoilers nothing go in blind and enjoy the show as much as possible right far less you know um flying super villains in the bear but but understand what you're saying yeah yeah uh, two completely different things yes but it's more i don't know it, I'm usually it, spoilers never bother me, but I think when you're really engrossed in a show and really part and really want to sort of just go in blind, I'll make as much effort as possible. Definitely. I think whilst we're talking about sort of now that some time has passed um, for season two and with season one being nominated for uh, a number of Emmys, um, how have you found the reception of the show? Like, you go online, there's such positive reactions. And then I've also tried to recommend it, recommend it to as many people as possible as well. It feels really nice. You know, whenever you work on something, uh, the, the end goal is ideally for people to, uh, to watch and enjoy it. So the fact that anyone was watching it to begin with was, uh, was really cool. You know, when, while we were working on the first season, we all thought that it was, we all enjoyed it. We were like, oh, this is, this is a pretty cool, pretty unique show. But that being said, you know, it, it's so hard to say why or when things break through, whatever that means uh, these days. So I think, I think, you know, in talking with the, with the creator early on, his ideal at the time was basically like, you know, maybe what'll happen is this will get like a, a, a small, but, you know, devoted kind of, you know, cult classic sort of following. And then in a perfect world, we you know we'll have a chance to to make a few more maybe, or this will lead to something else. So the fact that it, you know, became, you know, like a cultural thing, whatever that means. And, you know, I see cards and the like, greeting cards with Carmi's picture on it that say, you know, like, yes, chef and stuff like that. And I've had, you know, my parents, friends who I haven't talked to in years and years and years that, you know, dropped me a line just saying like, oh, we love the show. It's cool. It's uh, it's unique. And having worked on a lot of shows, I really appreciate when stuff like that happens because it is uh, it's few and far between that you get um, to work on something that uh, a lot of people are, are really into. As a as a creator and when you work on these shows, I think the biggest compliment will always be like your parents or your parents' friends, as you said, <laughs> and they haven't spoken to in ages, coming up to you and complimenting and being like, wow, I like, I really enjoyed this. Uh, and I always feel like that's like such a big barometer in terms of just like a, maybe it's an ego thing, but also it's like a, like, yeah, like my parents actually, or as in your case, parents, friends are watching it, enjoying it. And 
even like seeing all the memes online and the like the cultural footprint coming off it it's just like wow like it feels like this is the sort of moment that you need to experience and on top of that what was it the as you said the yes chefs and i i love the even the saying the like the saying that uh, michael has let it rip and that's just even something like that like so simple it's just you feel like like yeah let's let's get the let's get the uh, cooker going let's cook up like a nice mean meal yeah I think people that can relate to it, you know, whether or not that they've worked directly uh, in a restaurant or in a kitchen, everyone at some point in their life has, you know, either been part of a team or has been part of working together with a group of people to kind of come together and, and elevate whatever you're a part of into the, the best version of itself. And uh, everyone has, you know, family issues and their own hangups. And so a lot of the themes are pretty, pretty universal, um, which I think makes it... Um, pretty appealing to a lot of people and uh, you know everyone is uh, usually pretty uh pretty easy on the eyes so that definitely helps too. get some good music in there some pretty b-roll and uh you know like i it worked this time so i'm just yeah really i'm just really uh proud of it and really happy before we move on i do have just something that's come to my mind mentioning about the b-roll and that involves food which i do have a question for it but do you ever get hungry editing the show because there's so much sort of like lush food involved that even as an audience member watching it it's always i'll watch it during my lunch break so that i can at least have food in front of me so i don't sort of get hungry or or in my case probably get jealous about what's on screen rather than what's on my plate I mean, I wouldn't say that stop and go grab a bite while I'm working on stuff, but you know, you look at uh, close-ups of of beautiful, perfectly prepared food for hours at a time. It definitely, whether or not you mean for it to happen, it gets your reptile brain kind of revved up towards uh, wanting to eat something. Ideally, a good greasy sandwich. So yeah, I I get that. <laughs> I just just some of it when you just see like the beef as well, and you just see this everything sizzling. It's like, oh man, it's gonna get me going now. So we better move on just in case. But to get to the beginning, how did the project come about and what made you want to take it on? So Chris Storer, who's the creator of it, um, I had worked with him before on uh, a couple comedy uh, specials. And he had worked with uh, Joanna Noggle, who cut the pilot episode um, on uh, Rami, where he was a director. And they worked out of a place called uh, Senior Post, um, where Josh Senior, who's one of the executive producers uh, of The Bear, it's uh, his and Joanna's uh, post shop. So they cut the pilot and... Heard it was going to get picked up uh, for series. And once it got picked up, I had done a lot of work with them and we were really copacetic and get along and and the vibe is uh, is really good. And once it got picked up, they brought me on basically. They and they said, hey, would you want to work on this? I saw the pilot. I'm like, absolutely. This looks, I just, I liked how different it felt, especially the pilot and, you know, the, the kind of the creative freedom experimentation that was part of it. And uh, yeah, and, and and more than anything, though, it, it's a chance to, to work with people that are my friends and that we all enjoy uh, working together. And that, like, to me now, work-wise, that's, that's the most important thing, if, if you can make it happen. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a no-brainer, and I was just really lucky to, uh, to have the opportunity to do it. I was really lucky that they brought me in. The pilot in itself is like, as an audience, it doesn't treat the audience member as dumb. Because you get thrown into this whole situation and then you're just there as a fly on the wall to uh, whilst each character gets introduced and you already feel that there's like a past relationship there and it is so well uh, done in terms of like edited shots that 
you just get drawn straight into all these characters in this world. Yeah, Chris really made a point of not wanting to do any hand-holding right off the bat. A lot of it was because that can kind of, you know, sometimes be a little lazy and also just because the the really the manic kind of panicky nature of it, especially in, in that first episode, really kind of mirrored where, where Carmen's head was at at the time. And, and so much of the style and the structure that we try to bring to um, the episodes are oftentimes trying to really reflect the the internal feelings of the characters. So the pilot picks up when he's at his most crazed nothing has been set everything is just like absolute chaos and then the progression of the that season and the series as a whole you know is someone explained it really well um a while back they said it's 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 the chaos of something trying to come together which i thought was a really good way of putting it but yeah the pilot you're starting off from like peak manic chaos and then it's it's a slow progression of things still being very stressful intense but no, not near as you know as crazy as it was. If if we maintain that pace the entirety of the series, it would get like a, a little redundant, and then also I think people would it would just be overload. Um, you would just be like, I can't, I can't do this anymore, <laughs> and uh, and turn it off. Just the whole that manic pace is like it kind of fits into the theme of the show where it's like every second counts, yeah. and you have that manicness in it, but you also have those moments where it's. You let a scene breathe and the emotions play out. This is kind of going from what you've said as well, and um, because you jump between point of views of characters and how they're feeling. As an editor, how do you find the balance between the hecticness and the more the slower the then the hecticness and then the slower paceness of it all, but then also uh, having moments, having character moments shine in the scene. Yeah, I think it's just it's being cognizant of what should be the emotional focus of a moment or the emotional arc of an episode. Um, you know, a lot of that or the majority of that is is in the script. One of the reasons that I'm incredibly lucky to work on this is is the writers on this show are incredible. And these scripts, when you read them, they're great stories. They know where they're going, and that informs the choices that we're making editorially to to make sure to kind of maintaining as much of that emotional heft and as much of that character arc as possible. Um, and then it's just you know it's a it's a kind of a a scene by scene, episode by episode, um, you know, moment by moment decision making that always like having that as your north star like what what do we want to be conveying here and then it's just you know micro moments about deciding how do we best convey that as far as you know the, the differences between the really crazy fast pace you know manic stuff and then the slow exhale let things sort of breathe a lot of that initially when they were you know working at the beef was kind of mirroring the way that uh you know days at a restaurant like that really go you know you're in it it's crazy and then you go outside and you have a cigarette break and everything kind of like you know, exhales. And, you know, these actors are so incredible that a lot of times you really just want to live in what they're doing. So you have really constructed edit heavy scenes. And then you have moments that are almost almost like theater, truthfully, where it's just two people sitting down in a scene with a locked off camera and, and talking for four minutes. Um, so I think the the kind of the contrast and the, and the dichotomy between those two things makes it a unique and, and kind of an, an interesting um, kind of structural dance. When you're mentioning about how like the hecticness is in a in a very tight contained space, and then that sort of theatre aspect of a performance where they're talking, I think as like an audience member, I don't know. I guess those are really great sort of 
uh, intervals as a breather, but then also, but what's interesting about the show is when it's shot the very much very like not an extreme close up, but it's like mid to extreme close up. That is the face that fills the whole frame or quite a lot of the frame. And there's moments where you would think as an editor would get cut to then show somebody else's reaction when they're talking, but you hold on to that character reaction for an extra few seconds. And you can, dependent on the scene, like you can really see what like the character's mindset is through or the sort of emotion that they're going through. Yeah, ideally. And and that's, for me, that's what I'm always trying to lead with is, is the emotion of the scene. And it's not, you know, sometimes it's by design the way it's shot, you know, in the sense that like, okay, well, you know, we did five takes of the scene and all we have is, is you know, this one shot. Um, so we're, you know, we're, we're not going to be going into cross coverage. We're not going to be showing reactions. But then when you have, you know, a traditional coverage and like you're saying, you know, we'll be lingering maybe more on the person who's talking or, or vice versa. It's all about trying to ride that emotional wave, you know, by showing a reaction here, are we then kind of uh, doing short change to the feeling that would be conveyed by by letting something linger on this person who's talking's face? I mean, also, the vast majority of people in this show have incredibly beautiful eyes. Um, so so being and, and that's the thing, you know, you people are drawn to to human eyes. Um, so when you have like you're saying these kind of, you know, mid shoulder up close ups with piercing blue eyes that are looking straight ahead. That's a that's a good a good thing to uh, to linger on oftentimes, especially if it's, if it's, you know, carrying story and carrying emotion forward. So, yeah, but it's like everything. It's a, a, a kind of a case by case, moment by moment uh, decision. I think you, when you talk about piercing blue eyes, it's like Kami's uh, played by Jeremy Allen White. His eyes are literally like you can swim in them. They're so blue. <laughs> It's ridiculous. And when you're sort of looking at and he's so good at like just eye acting in terms of just like conveying so much sort of sadness and like heaviness that he's carrying. Yeah. And... Yeah. He, he's he's one of those actors. I mean, they everyone on the show is so good, but but definitely Jeremy's performances are when you first kind of watch them and you're not really paying too much attention to not not paying attention to him, but you're going through dailies. You don't oftentimes notice, like you're saying, these kind of like these micro acting moves that he's doing that that once you're then in it, that carry so much with it. It's really, it's really compelling um acting. And and these those close-ups, they really serve uh that. He can also be, you know, huge and physical and and like emotive and like really bring a lot of like big moments, but at the same time, in those quiet moments, I think is really one of the things that separates him from um from other actors. I think that's with a number of people on the show as well. The actor who plays Richie. I'm going to butcher his name, so apologies. Uh, I think it's pronounced Eben Moss. Eben Moss Backrack. He has that sort of sadness as well in his eyes, and he just he he emotes so well in what's happening, and another person carrying so much weight in his life, or the character's yeah. life, should I say? Yeah, I mean there there really isn't a weak link in the cast, in my opinion. Eben is amazing. Richie's Richie's my favorite character broadly. But Io is just incredible and has such like a had such a naturalistic. It um it doesn't feel like it's written the way that she oftentimes will deliver lines. It's it's really loose and it it also kind of is a great characterization of her of her character's personality as far as always kind of like 
wanting to be on to the next thing. And you can sometimes feel her, the way she performs it, it the character's trying to almost like catch up with her own, th- her own thoughts, which I think is really a really cool choice. They're just all great. They're, it, again, another reason why I'm lucky. Um, you know, you, you're only so good as, you're only as good as like what you're given. And I've been just really grateful that in the footage and the talent um, that are making this uh, when I get that footage I'm like oh my god this is this is all gold and then uh it's just my job not to you know mess it up too much <laughs> it's Croft is well edited so don't worry you haven't messed up too much and even when is he mentioning the actor that the actress sorry um who plays um the actress that plays Sydney Ayo her delivery as he said as well she's like it's just perfect for that character in terms of how somebody would try to catch up with uh, what's going on and the madness around them and kind of being the sort of newer person involved and trying to sort of just catch up so you don't get left behind. Yeah. But there's also, there's a big difference in season one and two in terms of focus on characters. Season one, I think it does follow more Kami's point of view while season two you get a lot more of the side characters and their story really blossoms and there's one episode in particular that comes to mind which is the Forks episode which you edited yourself which I think is probably maybe joint favorite uh, episode of this series when you have a episode where there's so much character development and you see a change in how the character behaves and what they want to take in because when we find Richie in the beginning of the series he's very lost and he has a conversation but in with Kami about what his purpose is and as the season progresses he's still making a lot of mistakes and thinks that he's right and you know for example like the whole mold situation and when the ceiling collapses as well and then this is an episode where you see Richie really shine in forks and sort of come into his own. When you're editing a episode like this, where there's so much character progression and change, um, is there? How do you prepare for it? Is it something that you kind of just let the script flow with it, or is it a case of sort of trying to show the performances and how uh, the characters are changing? Yeah, it's. I think for me, it is. It is all in the script as far as you know. Obviously, what happens, but especially on something where, it, is it is it technically possible to spend a week at a place and then you know become fully understand how to expedite at a high end restaurant? Maybe. I mean, he's he is a good learner and he's really he is attentive when he puts his energy in, in that direction. So so for me, while I'm working on something like that, I'm really deliberate about shots that I'm choosing that can get as much information across about him taking things in and learning them and letting letting either the emotion or the the nuts and bolts of what's going on in front of him to see in his eyes that something is really like landing and then whether or not that becomes kind of you know subconscious you feel that there's progression even though you're not necessarily you know seeing him you know jump higher and jump higher and like that type of montage it's it's you know getting a, a even if it's a quick look while chef jess is doing a crazy expediting breaking breaking down like the service and he he's, it's choosing shots of really seeing him kind of looking around and and picking things up and then you know writing music on transitions to ideally kind of show okay this this section here 
this is kind of the pinnacle of this section. And now we're going to move on to the next thing. So you're, you're fitting a lot into a short amount of time. And then also, you know, they were very smart about the way that they had a lot of a lot of footage that could be used in in montage in a way to show a lot of progression in a short amount of time, like sh- many shots of the alarm clock at, at uh, you know, slightly earlier and earlier and earlier times to then layer in to kind of subtly show how he's slowly improving. But I think a lot of that, again, is, is, is Eben's performance and the way that he's the way that over the course of the, the, the first series and into the second one, you see that he's changing, but he's still himself, which I think was really cool. And I think that that can be a very hard thing to do, especially when someone uh, improves that they don't then become, you know, a fake improved version of themselves. Like even in episode 10, when he really kind of takes over and, and and ends up kind of, you know, saving the service on friends and family night, he's not doing it in a way that isn't Richie. He's being very good at what he's doing, but in like the most Richie way possible, which is great. And and so it's it's using it's using what I'm given in the performance. It's using what I'm given in the script and just making sure that I'm always honing in on like on the, the, the truth and the emotion um, of the character. I think those subtle sort of buildups as well really do show as like an audience member help you understand like the change of a character, but then also he doesn't lose the essence of his, like his personality. He's somebody who's trying to better themselves, but he's not going to lose that sort of, uh, the cocksureness of it, should we say? And I think the court. The one thing I think picked up on is like the Taylor Swift needle drop, <laughs> where it's just uh, it's quite funny to hear because it's a, a show that has a lot of dad rock in it to then change to sort of more poppy vibe. But I guess that's also like a really nice subtle hint of progression of he really didn't like Taylor Swift. And then he's got tickets for his daughter. And I think now he's making even more effort, not just in his work life, but personal life to grow and try to sort of embrace what people like and not be that uh, like angry man anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's just, I think a a lot of people in the first uh, series, you guys call it series, right? Not season, correct? Uh, Yeah. We we say series, but we do have, it, it does come up as like seasons, like in in the sort of description bit, but right, it, right. Well, I'll, 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 I'll stick on the UK version. So in, in, in the first series, I think a lot of people, they not had like the wrong take on him because there's no right or wrong, but the way that I would see people often like describing Richie, I think ignored a lot of what, what that character was really kind of dealing through, was really going through and dealing with. And they looked at kind of like the top level details and allowed that to really frame their perception of him. So I, I read a lot of times where people were like, oh, like this dumb, loud, like he's not dumb. He's, you know, in the very, it's all there in the pilot too. In the pilot, you know, they're going around like, what are you thankful for? And he says like, I'm thankful for like Philip K. Dick. And like, he's a big, he's like a Blade Runner fan. He's obviously like a reader. He's not the dumb, dumb. He just has a lot of misplaced pain and grief and confusion about like where he is because he's completely unmoored after he lost his best friend. Um, And I like, I think a lot of people can also relate to, you know, being in a position when you get older and you like, what, have, what am I doing with my life? And I know I'm not stupid, but I don't have specific skills to put towards something. Um, and then you're kind of wallowing. And the way that he would deal with that was by being trying to overcompensate by being like, you know, loud and asserting himself as like, you know, a specific type of like alpha, whether or not he was that. And I think people like they they read that as like, well, that guy's an asshole. It's like he was acting like an asshole, but just but because 
he he was was searching basically um so it's nice to see that's the first episode of series two it starts out with him asking about like purpose and they set up that arc really really wonderfully yeah great character <laughs> i'm a fan i think he potentially is probably my favorite if if you had to put a gun to my head in terms of uh who would i have to choose um it's like picking yeah. your favorite child basically but as I mentioned as well about the needle drops, there are a number of needle drops in the show. And is this something that, with the song choices, is that something that's presented to you early on? So whilst you're editing, you always have that song in mind? Or does is it something that comes up later on and then it changes the way that you might edit the scene? Um, it's a combination of a lot of things. Um, we're we're very lucky in the sense that on this show we don't really have a traditional music supervisor. We uh, Chris, the creator, and Josh Senior, uh, one of the EPs, they're they're the music supervisors. And so early on, like before we're starting on the season, we'll have um, like a, a huge Spotify playlist that's shared where people are throwing in stuff that might feel right for this and then oftentimes chris or josh will have an idea like the, the opening song the bruce hornsby song in the opening of uh, series two um that was like in the script like this is the song we want to use like the taylor swift needle drop like i forget if it was that specific song but definitely like a taylor swift song but then a lot of times it's very loosey-goosey as far as like when and where stuff will be falling so we'll have a playlist to kind of like maybe pull through but especially during editors assemblies and, and first editors cuts, um, we're really trying stuff out just kind of based on um, what we feel. Um, and they're also really open to uh, to pitches, which is which is really fun. I mean, my my selfishly, my favorite thing is when I like I pitch a song or I'll put it in my editor's cut and it ends up staying in uh, all the way through, which is which is really fun. I mean, Chris and Josh and myself are all about the same age, you know, similar tastes as far as like that kind of um, or similar knowledge as far as like that, like the, the type of music that's in the show. But then it's cool to, you know, have episodes like episode four of uh, series two with like Marcus and in Copenhagen where the vibes change. So we're not going to be, you know, doing that kind of more traditional straight ahead rock. Um, you know, we can do some stuff like, uh, you know, you know, Harmonia 76, like instrumental vibey things or a little more soul or um, Ted's, I forget the name of the artist, but the, when he's, he's the instrumental when he's walking around. So you can get, you can really kind of uh, experiment. And um, as far as how music informs like the cutting style uh you know definitely when like we're doing montage and the music is really driving it it, it definitely informs the rhythm um but one of the interesting things that that i've kind of discovered on the show that we've done um a lot of times we'll be working on a scene uh to music it, one of the episodes that i did episode nine when when sydney's cooking an omelet um for for natalie that always had music underneath it and so the the rhythm of the way that i was cutting was very you know not necessarily on the beat but but was using the movement of the music that we were using and then towards the end uh chris and josh were like i think that scene just doesn't need music it should be clean it should just be like the sounds of the cooking and that's what will pull us through um which was i think totally the right move um but then you have this kind of interesting situation where you have something that if you were cutting it to begin with with no music uh, or you didn't eventually put music into it you probably wouldn't have done the specific kind of cutting pattern and rhythm that you were doing so it leaves you with kind of like an interesting cutting pattern uh once you pull the music out that you wouldn't have had if it hadn't been in to begin with um so that's like a, a technique that i found uh kind of interesting on this show it's it's fascinating to hear that there's always that 
that you guys have like a Spotify playlist and you can kind of throw ideas in. I can imagine like with a traditional sort of music supervisor there, sort of working away in the shadows of what the showrunner or director would like them to sort of find or what they have in mind. But on top of that as well, like, you know, you can sneak in one of your suggestions and then see if it kind of gets there to over the line to for oh, when totally. it comes it comes out comes out so yeah that was always like a nice little pat on the back to say um, oh, it's, well my, my my favorite thing and the thing i'm most again selfishly proud about is in in forks and in, in episode seven the the richie episode i before we even started on on uh, series two i had watched um thief the Michael Mann movie and the opening score of Thief is is, is that Tangerine Dream track. And I remember I texted Josh uh, after I watched him like, dude, when was the last time you, it's, Thief takes place in Chicago? It has just such a Michael Mann style look. I'm like, when was the last time you watched that movie? And we kind of talked about the opening 10 minutes. And then when I started getting the footage of Richie, you know, kind of the, the pump up stuff and really getting going and putting on a suit for the first time. And uh, I was like, oh, man, you know, what would be cool here it would be just the the theme from Thief by Tangerine Dreams. I literally like, ripped it off YouTube, put that in for like the my first build. And they're like, yeah, this is sick. We're going to keep we're going to keep this the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> and then and we ended up, you know, clearing it. And that's that's what was in there. Um, but yeah, that was a. Uh, that was a fun treat. Uh, I'm very thankful that they went with that. So when you hear something like that as well, where that's like that inspiration, something like where you have that inspiration watching something else and you just think, wow, this would, let's try pepper this in to the show. And even having something like that, where it, it is set in Chicago. So then you can kind of sell it that way as well. It's like, come on, it's come from the same area. We can, we can yeah. manage to work it in. They're really smart about that too, like having these, you know, kind of multi-layer allusions to things like that Bruce Hornsby song. It it works amazingly tonally, but also it was part of a, a you know, a montage sequence in the movie Backdraft, which is about Chicago firefighters. Um, so all these little kind of through lines. Um, it, it's very rare. There there aren't really any like haphazard choices um, in the show. Everything is very kind of thought out and deliberate. I think as well with like, because in the first series, there were some certain complaints about how uh, positioning of like where Chicago, of where people were in Chicago, and um, and I guess once you add another layer to that of like music that relates to it, I think that will bring people more into the into the city and sort of understand it more. Because I think I went there uh, last January, and because uh, one of my friends live out lives out there, and it's. It's a. It feels like a bit of an underrated city in terms of compared to somewhere like New York, and it feels a lot less busier than New York. But it's a lot. It feels a lot more fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. It also depends what months you were there. I've been, I've spent a lot of time in Chicago, and during the spring and the summer, it's the best place in the world. And during the winter, it's pretty rough, man. <laughs> yeah, th- honestly, it was like I d- it wasn't. I think it was like minus fifteen or something, and Ugh. that's degrees, uh, not Fahrenheit, and there was a point where I was like running to stay in the sunshine and not be like uh, left in the in the dark because it was just so cold. I've never been so cold in my life, and I've been to Eastern Europe in the winter. Chicago felt a lot worse. Yeah, I mean that also informs a lot of the mentality and the way that the kind of the attitudes and the energy, um, and you know the kind of the insular nature when things are cold and the way everything explodes when the weather gets nice. And um, yeah, it's a great, it's an amazing city. I think you feel that in the second series where you have those um, aerial shots of the city and with all the snow. And I think maybe that's just like a way of 
as you're saying, with them opening up after a certain amount of weeks, um, oh. is that explosion of going from uh, one extreme to the other of having a really cold winter and then coming out of hibernation like a bear. Huh. See, layers, <laughs> of, layers upon layers. <laughs> and then to sort of coming out into the sort of spring, summertime. But speaking about food and I know we spoke about it a little bit earlier, but there's a lot of cut scenes of food being prepared in close up of hands working on it. I was re I think I was listening to another podcast where I think you mentioned that usually you get B roll footage, which would be about four hours. So the whatever's whatever food is being prepped, they'll do it a number of times. So you have all that footage and you can insert that in. How do you go about inserting these shots? into the show and for them not to be taken away from the story. I mean, there isn't really a hard, fast rule. So much of it, especially in the scenes where the close-ups on the food are part of the, you know, if it's a high-paced kind of food prep, chop, 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 really kind of heavy and intense scene, usually like those close-ups just become part of what feel, you know, the right kind of rhythmic back and forth. I mean, you use them as they kind of like either punctuations, especially when you bring sound design to, you know, like a, if there's a close zoom to the fire, you, you know, get like a sizzle underneath that that lets you kind of slam into the next line in an interesting way. So it really, it really depends, you know, on kind of what the scene is, but they do such an amazing job of, of covering the food prep, of making it look beautiful. The vast majority of the time, it's the actual actors either doing the chopping or doing the prep. There's definitely a bunch of scenes where, you know, it starts off and like a cut, 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 but then it kind of comes up and you see that it's actually, you know, Jeremy like doing the cutting or Io, like she made the entire omelet. There's no, there's no, you know, stunt hands in any of that. So yeah, so it's just, it's finding the pockets where you're like you're saying not taking away from the story but at the same time you know kind of highlighting um both the food and then also highlighting the way that it's being made and the, and the skills uh involved from the people so ideally they're nice texture that are also adding uh to the moment i think those scenes always like feel when you're watching it and you're watching people prepare it they feel it's like another layer of art being shown off and i think as like an audience member because i guess for us as like humans food is just something that's like to keep is something that just keeps us alive and to sustain us but then when you see how certain food is being prepared how it gets chopped up how it's made you kind of think like wow there it's like this is incredible even to the point now that i actually use a, a sieve to do my when i make an omelet uh, because i watch it yeah because i watched it on the, i watched it on the bed and i thought if they could if they could do it i could do it and it, I th- it makes a difference. It does make a difference. It makes it smoother. I think in my mind, it actually tastes better as well. But maybe <laughs> that's just me, like like a placebo effect. Um, but I think it does make it uh, taste a lot better. But I think as well, when you look at the um, the honeydew episode and when they're creating the desserts, how there's like a specific way that these things have to be done like scooping out from the tub you know scooping it one way and then going back the other that is something that i might try with ice cream i'm not sure if it will work but just how like the presentation and how neat it is and just like it's just mind-blowing how creative people can be with food and how amazing it can look at the same time yeah and then i think one of the one of the things that makes it you know 
extra interesting from an art form is it's it's so fleeting it's so ephemeral so you can spend so much time on something and then you put it on the plate and then you can take a picture of it but it, it's gone it's not it's not a sculpture it's not a painting you know it's not a piece of film it's it was there and it existed and then it's and time to make the next one um which i think is something that is kind of a through line with with the show is that you get done with one thing but then it's there's always the next thing. There's always the next thing. It, it never stops. And uh, I think that's something, I think that vibe kind of permeates throughout too. And I think, again, it kind of creates that theme of the show where you see it in the last episode with the um, ticker, with the food orders and how that no matter how amazing it is for people to create it, they just have to sort of keep going and keep going. And it's like you're creating how many pieces of art in a day of like food prep and whatnot compared to like sculptor, for example, who might take years just to create one one piece. Yeah. And it's just like, wow, this is really cool. And it also, you kind of see it as like, oh, you in your mind, it starts racing of like, I wonder how some of this tastes like as well. Yeah. I uh, was not on set for any of the food, um, but I hear it's all very delicious. It's all real too. There's no like fake. They're all, that's all real stuff that's being made and then eaten by the crew. So do, do they not ever sort of think about the uh, people in post-production? <laughs> no, maybe... no, no. It's so, so we did, we did all the posts in New York and they're, and they're shooting in Chicago. So that makes it, I don't know if the T-bone ships well, you know, uh, on the plane. So it's, it's understandable. There's only one way to find out, right? That's true. That's true. I should, I'll bring it up next season. In the production meeting, see if they can, uh, if they have the budget for it to send over. Beautiful. <laughs> I'm glad I could uh, contribute to that. Just to lead to the sort of few final questions, what was your favorite scene that you didn't edit? And that's tough, just because I think Joanna is a genius, basically. Whenever I whenever I look at any of her episodes, I'm always just blown away by her work. See, maybe I say favorite probably just because it really set the the tone and the expectations for the entirety of the show. Just like the opening five minutes of of the pilot when Carm's starting to cook, setting up a ball breaker tournament, uh, selling jeans in the lot to get beef, you know, interspersed with pictures of his childhood and setting up Chicago and the amount of things that are being juggled and really establishing, okay, this is this is what this show can feel like. This is what this show looks like. And, and really just kicking it off with such a blast. It's like immediately iconic. Um, I could, I could, you know, name pretty much every other scene that she, that she was a part of too, um, just because I think she's that good. But um, yeah, so let's go with like that opening. There's just so much going on and it, it's it's juggled so well. It could easily teeter off the rails into just complete craziness, but it it never it never really breaks. It's really impressive. Opening of the pilot does start off with that sort of slow calm scene before the bear gets released. Yeah. In the dream sequence. And then when you get woken up, it's like, boom, there's so much that needs to be done. And then there's so many problems that need to be sorted. And then this and then that. And you just think juggling that sort of fast pacedness of it all and then slowing it down to when Sydney comes in to then introduce everybody to that world. And yeah. there's a fine art to it. Yeah, no, she's she's as good as it gets. Across, I could literally pick any of her scenes in any of the episodes. The entirety of, of the Fishes episode in Series 2, the Christmas uh, dinner episode. I mean, every single one of those scenes is just, it, there's so much skill involved. It's so precise. The way that she uses the the timers going off um, in the kitchen and like the sound design on those and the ability to you know make you feel just incredibly 
tense and anxious just through her pacing and and her rhythm and sound is just yeah a plus yeah i'm not really sure how i can top what you said and (laughs) uh, describe what joanne's work is like because it's just it is incredible and in terms of just everybody performances was captured was edited all together and the writing um it kind of does blow you away with just how good it is and what's being performed but i guess i have another tough question for you and this is like this would definitely be like choosing your, who your favorite child is. What was your favorite scene that you edited? Let's go, just, you know, knee-jerk reaction. Maybe the opening to series one, episode six, where we see Michael for the first time. It's that kind of really golden flashback where it's him and Richie and Carmen Sugar in the kitchen. And you say, telling the story about, you know, meeting Bill Murray and being at the bar and the way that their interaction, you immediately get this idea of this guy who's been kind of a ghost hanging over it. And you get you get the weight of his character and why he was so compelling and so important really quickly. And then you also see just like the way that they're interacting and the way that Carm is, you know, naturally kind of digging into the food. And it's a nice build that has kind of almost like a bit of a dream nostalgia logic to it. It probably wasn't exactly like that, but it, you know, it seems more in memory. And then the cut from him telling the story to the really sharp reveal of Richie on a date and how the vibe shift just happens immediately. And so you realize like, oh, Richie was kind of probably telling this story and now we see it in you know, present day and we see how without uh, without his friend and his rock with him, uh, everything that he's trying to do you know, kind of pales in comparison. And it was just, I was really uh, lucky to be able to, to have that scene uh, with John Bernthal for the first time. It was a really cool reveal. Yeah, I'll go with that. I really, I really like that scene. I think that's a really solid choice. I think with that scene, because when you're, you have such different, like the juxtaposition and two of them where it's like, it should be a really cool anecdote that you can tell on a date and people would be quite impressed, especially if it's like you meet a certain celebrity or even if somebody's sort of like tapping your shoulder and going on. And then when you have that, when it does cut to the date, like they're not impressed and it's just, I think it fits so well in terms of the story and how one one side is like really bigged up, but then the other side is just like, ah, oh, it's just a bit of a nothing nothing story. Yeah. And it, again, it kind of like filters in to the character of Richie because at that time it probably felt like such a big moment to then be dismissed about it. it probably hurts deep down as well. Yeah, definitely. There was something that just popped to my mind as well. Oh, yes, I know what I was going to say. Also, what's quite amazing about the bear is like the amount of cameos it has in the show and how you see people just pop up for a scene here or there in between an episode. And again, if you go in blind, it's a really nice surprise. And I think especially in the Forks episode where you have uh, Olivia Coleman, which is like a really pleasant scene having discussion with uh, Richie and then also in Honeydew having Will Poulter in in that episode talking about his experiences and how he was so driven to become the best and then we kind of find out later on as audiences audience members that he was talking about Kami and his experiences working with with him and I think that kind of plays out more until like episode 10 where you kind of see how much Kami gives to everybody else but it doesn't he's not forgiven to himself when you're editing these episodes where you have these cameos is there a way that you cut it so that the reveal isn't that like when somebody sees somebody who's quite 
well known that it's more like that you want them to be drawn into the uh, into the scene rather than be taken out as far as you know the 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 reveals at least on those i tried to make it a little more just matter of fact less you know here's the big hero shot of olivia coleman you know as she walks in you know in that one too it's just it was just coming off of you know some mushrooms and you just hear her talking and then it's just oh look at look at it's the queen oh my goodness but uh, both those scenes are really nice mirrors of each other and i totally agree with what you said as far as carmy recognizes great ways to to help his team and to help others and knows what 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 those people need to take them to their next level um and i think he really recognizes the positive aspects of mentors and chefs like uh chef terry olivia coleman's character and luca um will polter's character and sees that that style is beneficial. I think that's what he's trying to get to. But then at the same time, he has, it's like so many of us, you know, we have, we have things and advice that we give to other people that we can never internalize and take to heart uh, in our own lives. And I think those are, you know, two good examples of that. But at the same time, you know, the, the sign I think of a good leader, or in this case, you know, what, what Carmi is doing at the end of the day, they ended up doing great without him. And that what he doesn't realize is that's a that's success. He just he sees it as it wasn't it wasn't done in the way that that he, you know, idealized it coming from, you know, his extremely stressful, extremely regimented style. So I think, you know, hopefully at some point if we get a, you know another season, you know, he can kind of be a little more gentle to himself and uh, we'll see who knows. Yeah, and I think we see it in episode 3 of season 1 where we get the flashback of Carmi, um, and there's uh, Joel McHale's character, who's a chef in NYC, who's very. Um, I think Dick is a it was calling him a an, a Dick is a bit of an understatement, it's, and it's, yeah, it's it's motivation through toxicity, basically, as opposed to motivation through you know uplifting and support and and, and being positive. Um, and you know, I think that is a. Not necessarily an old school way, but that I think that was really the way that people uh, assumed that you had to, that's how you get people good, you know, whether or not it's sports or cooking, it's, you know, the, you get people good by breaking them down and then, you know, you get them to nothing and then you build them back up and form them. And I think one of the kind of, I think that's like a theme throughout the show as far as like, what's, how, how do, how does growth happen? How do people become a better version of themselves? Is there a right way? Is it a little bit of both? And I like that these are all open-ended questions. There's, we're not trying to be like, well, here's the answer, you know, be nice to people and it'll be better. It's like, you know, not necessarily, but it, it definitely provides, um, you know, different ways to think about it and different ways to approach it. And, uh, just to be introspective about, about that type of thing. Yes. And you put it in very much, uh, well articulated way with the uh, toxicity of the workplace um rather than what how i how i put it um, well, he is very he is very mean though and a dick so okay <laughs> They're all, all true <laughs> and i think you always have that le- looming over um until the uh, episode 10 of the second series where uh, they pop up again so just to wrap up the episode what would you say is your signature dish to cook I'm definitely not a chef by any stretch of the imagination. My wife is an incredible cook, but I'm I'm very good at breakfasts. So I would say uh, something along a you know layered egg avocado, turkey, some hot sauce, and a kind of maybe like a little bit of a wrap, and put that in a pan and get some good grill, and cut that in half, and slice up a mango, and uh, good to go. Um, so that'll I'll put that as a as my signature dish. 
Okay, you're talking my language. I feel like I should, uh, if I'm ever in New York, I know to look you up for good breakfast. We'll do, yeah, we'll do, we'll do some, ho- some homemade crunch wraps. It'll be good. I'll bring the champagne so we can have, have a nice brunch, a champagne yeah. brunch. All right. Now, now you're talking my language. Perfect. Adam, thank you so much for your time today. The Bear Season 1 and 2 is streaming now on Hulu, FX, Disney+, Plus, all around the world. Go out, check it out, enjoy it. Yeah, enjoy Adam's work and everybody's work in it. Thanks so much, Rob. It was a pleasure. Thank you again. You take care and bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast.